Well, <clears throat> which do you prefer, team sports or individual sports? Individual sports seem more intense, at least from a player's perspective, because it's, it's all up to you. Whether you succeed or not is entirely up to your and your performance. Did you train hard enough? Did you practice enough? If you succeed, you get all the credit, but if you fail, you take all the blame. Team sports are quite different, though. It doesn't necessarily matter how good you are. Matters how good everyone on the team is. With teams, you know that cliche phrase proves true that you're only as strong as your weakest link. Everyone needs to rise in their skill level for teams to win. In addition, teams rely on team work. All the different team members have to work together. They all have a different role to play and a different ability, and they have to coordinate. They have to work in concert with one another. And when that happens, great teamwork can make up for lower skill. More more than a few average teams have won a championship just because they were able to work together. And the opposite, more than a few outstanding teams still lost because they could not work together. The huge culprit behind a lack of teamwork is pride. Modern sports has become a, a breeding ground for ego. You know, you're paid hundreds of millions of dollars, the desire for personal fame and glory far outweighs the desire for team success. Selfishness is fostered, and that really is a recipe for defeat. You see this, for example, in NFL teams. They have one year, like a, a losing team. They have a new roster, no, no big names on the roster. But they all are fed by this desire for a championship. They, they just want to win at, at all costs. They sacrifice ego. No one's thinking about themselves. They're playing selflessly. They're all about the team. You might have a wide receiver, and he's happy just to block. There's no glory in blocking, but it's necessary if if you want to win. And it's happened before where a team like this goes on to win the championship. But what happens next, the following year, now that everyone's tasted that glory and that success, they all want to get paid. They want attention. They They want more money. Egos form. Contract contract holdouts begin. Players want more time, more attention. They they want to skip practice. Practice is for the the lesser players. They become more about building their brand than building a team. And that's when you see a real teamwork meltdown. That's why a lot of those teams never get back to the championship. At the end of the day, though, we're just talking about sports. And granted, our Our culture makes sports out to be the most important thing, but when you think about it, it's just a bunch of grown men being paid lots of money to play games for our entertainment. Whether this team wins the championship or that team, it's it's far from an eternal concern. What does it really matter? It's a different story, though, when it comes to the church. Jesus made his church to function very much like a team, only we're not playing games. The stakes are high. We're talking about the eternal destinies of many souls made in the image of God. We in the church are those who, by God's grace, have come to receive and believe the good news that God sent his Son into the world to save sinners. That Christ, by his death and resurrection, by faith in him, the lost can be found and forgiven and made new. We inherit eternal life and a joy that that surpasses all understanding. In Christ, we've already won the battle against sin and Satan and death. But that doesn't mean our work is done. The Lord has given the church a mission. Outwardly, it's to make disciples of all the nations by preaching the good news. Inwardly, it's to build up one another in the faith until we attain to Christ-likeness. It's, it's a big mission. It's never-ending. It's, in a sense, overwhelming. History shows how easy it is for the church in, in any given generation to fail in this mission. If we're going to succeed, one thing is certain, that we have to work together. The church is not a solo sport. The work the Lord has given us to do, it it can't be done alone. It requires a multitude of gifts and abilities, more than any one person possesses. Rather, the Lord has given everyone in the church different roles and responsibilities, and all must work doing their part, and all, all must work together in concert with one another. Everyone must contribute in an atmosphere of harmony. But 
Also, like team sports, what kills the church's effectiveness is ego and pride. And the church is meant to be all about Christ and his glory, right? I mean, who really goes to church seeking their own fame and their own glory? Well, it, it turns out a lot of people. This happened very early on in the church. People started learning that they could use this new church thing for their own personal gain. They could work this new religion for their benefit. That's why in Philippians 1, Paul talks about those who were in Rome preaching the gospel. He says, not from pure motives, but just for the sake of personal, gain, selfish ambition. They use godliness as a means of gain, often in the form of money, but also just influence or prestige or fame, recognition. And sadly, inflated egos have been found in the church since the beginning. This is just misplaced worship, though. We were made by God to worship him and to find our joy and our satisfaction in him. But after the fall, we, we seek that joy and satisfaction in our own worship. We want to be worshiped. Not only is this sinful, but when this mentality infiltrates the church, it's disastrous to the mission. Yeah, all too many ministers, they become more concerned, not with building Christ's name, but their own name. And they're not trying to spread the gospel. They're trying to spread their brand. And they want to advance not Christ's kingdom, but, but their own little kingdom. And these same types of ministers then discourage teamwork. And to them, the, the outward and the inward mission of the church, it's not about every member participating and contributing with his or her gifts. Rather, their value only comes in as much as they serve the pastor's ambition. This is why a lot of members at such churches eventually become obsolete and useless. They no longer fit the target demographic. They, they can't contribute to the church's brand. They, they don't really do anything anymore. They're free to, to sit and attend, but, but that's about it. But this is not how the Lord intended the church to be built up and built out. Thankfully, the Apostle Paul knew this, and his writings can help set the church straight. We often think of Paul as the greatest apostle, but in Scripture, we see him as, as lowly and meek, because he understood he was nothing more than a slave of Christ being used for his glory. Paul was not seeking his own personal fame. Remember, he rebuked the Corinthian church when, when they started playing the name game. They were, they were gathering around Christian celebrities. You know, I am of Paul. I am, I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. But that's not right. He wasn't trying to create his own little following. I can only imagine Paul would be very upset today to learn that churches were named after him. But he was sold out to the building or to building the name of Jesus alone. And Paul also understood that the mission of the church in magnifying the name of Jesus could not be done alone. It really is a team effort. That's why we always see Paul talking to the church like it's a team, supporting the team, encouraging the team, training the team. He believed in the value of each and every member from great to small, everyone just contributing with their gifts to the same mission. We're all on the same team. We're after the same thing. It's the glory of God and, and Christ and his gospel. Every believer in the church today still needs to be convinced that their contribution to the work of the ministry is essential. And this is a message you will receive from the Apostle Paul. We're going to see this message again today in Colossians chapter 4. And so take your Bibles now and open them up to Colossians chapter 4. Here we, we come to the very end of this book, nearing the end of our time through this letter. We're into the conclusion where Paul shares his, his farewell greetings. What we find here is, is customary in ancient letters. But in, in Colossians, Paul really goes above and beyond. He greets just this extensive list of people here at the end. You read through this list, a bunch of names. They're all dead and gone. You've never heard of them before. You might find these verses in Scripture just kind of irrelevant. Like, wh how could this possibly relate to today? What do these verses have to do with us? We're, we're not the Colossian church directly. Nothing. 
But by way of inspiration, God has made every verse in his scriptures relevant and profitable for the church in every age. And here, as you just take a step back and you see the bigger picture, you learn a profound lesson just by considering all these names and the characters behind them. You learn this lesson that, that the church is not built alone. It, it really is a team effort. The Apostle Paul, he's, he's not alone responsible for anything. He gets all the attention, but if it were not for the, the countless people in ministry with him, around him, he would have accomplished nothing. The church would have had no impact. And the church is not built alone. Last time we started in verses 7 through 10. Today we're continuing with the rest of verses 10 through 14. And look, in one sense, it's, it's just a bunch of farewell greetings. You might not pay a lot of attention to it, but in another sense, you know, as we consider these various characters, I really hope you derive encouragement by their faithful examples. They, they all give us just an example of faithfulness and serving each member, great to small, contributing their part to the same mission. May that encourage us to, to learn that lesson. The church is not built alone. It doesn't spread alone, doesn't thrive alone, it doesn't grow alone. And that may that then convict you and motivate you to now do your part, to add your name to that list. Here we are, 2,000 years later. Well, look back at verse 7. We covered 7 through 10, but just to re-situate us in the context, let's read the beginning of his conclusion here as we get back going. Look back at verse 7. It's Colossians chapter 4. He wraps it up and he says, As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. That's where we finished last time. We just looked at the first three of these characters, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus. And now we're just going to pick up where we left off, which is right in the middle of verse 10. And can you continue with these character studies and this greeting? And that brings us to now, I guess it's number four, and that would be Mark. So look at the middle of verse 10, where he adds, And also, Barnabas' cousin Mark, about whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So we find next on the list is Mark. Now, there's, there's actually a ton of encouraging backstory to this, this one little verse. You might read this, think nothing of this, of the name, but if you're a student of the book of Acts, you would know there's, there's a lot actually behind this little reference to Mark. There's a lot going on here, and let me show you. It starts with Barnabas. He was the main missionary of the early church. Before Paul, he was out there long before Paul. In fact, Barnabas was the one who vouched for Paul and brought Paul along to the other apostles. And so later, though, Paul and Barnabas become this kind of stellar missionary tag team. Barnabas, he had a cousin named John Mark, or just Mark. And Mark went on to accompany Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Acts 13.5 says Mark was their helper. He was the support guy. Their first big stop was the island of Cyprus, and they were going to evangelize the whole island. And they did. They just went around from town to town, the whole island of Cyprus. But there, they also got their first taste of opposition. This is the first missionary journey. And hey, turns out not everyone likes hearing about Jesus. Some people came to oppose them. They finished their time there, though. They're ready to sail north, get into Asia Minor. Paul and Barnabas, they're ready to move on. But Mark leaves them. He deserts. He leaves the team. He goes back home to Jerusalem. Why? Because he was scared and he was just not ready for all this. And sometime later, fast forward, Paul and Barnabas, they're gearing up to start a second missionary journey. Go back to all those same churches. According to Acts 15.37, Barnabas wanted to take Mark along with them again. He's his cousin after all and Barnabas. He's an encouraging guy. That's what his name means. But Acts 15.38 says this, 
says, but Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. You know, isn't there time of great ministry need? And then Mark just deserted them. And so Paul refused to take Mark along with them a second time. You know, I've been watching a world's toughest race in Fiji. It's a hundred, uh, rather, a, it's a 10-day, 300-plus mile race through intense you know, terrain. In Fiji, it's, it's a four-person team. Any one team member drops out, the whole team is disqualified. It's, it's pretty intense. But each team actually has a fifth person. It's not on the race, but they all have a fifth support person who's there at every checkpoint to resupply them, feed them, just take care of their needs. That's an essential member in the team. So just imagine you're going on this grueling race. You've trained for months, maybe years. You're, you're finally on this crazy long race. You get to your first checkpoint where you just need some rest and food, and you find that your support team member has left. He thought it was just too hard for him. Just the conditions were too rough. You're out there racing and suffering, and he just thought it was too hard. He went back home. Think about how how hurt you'd be, how betrayed you'd feel, how disastrous that would be for your race. So would you take that same person along as your support member for the next race? Probably not. And you can see why Paul just refuses to take Mark along again for the second missionary journey. Paul goes, goes his own way. That's the last we hear of Mark in the book of Acts. The next time we encounter Mark, though, is, is right here in Colossians. He's sending his greetings to Colossian church. It, we find he may even go to the Colossian church on some unidentified mission. But, but wait, put that together. What does that mean? Last we heard, Paul had basically cut Mark off. But now it's about a decade later. Mark is with Paul in Rome, sending his greetings. He's, he's back on the team. Verse 11, he's called a fellow worker. So he's on the team again, and he looks like a, a valuable member. What happened? Well, Mark was restored. That's what's happened. We know that while he was in Rome, Mark was discipled by the apostle Peter. Peter calls Mark his son in the faith, 1 Peter 5.13. Peter Likewise, knew a thing or two about failing and falling, but being restored and renewed to service. And that's what happened with Mark. In reality, you know, who's without some failure in their commitment to the Lord? Who's displayed nothing but absolute perfect faithfulness in every step of their discipleship to the Lord? Like, we, we've all fallen short. The Lord is thankfully gracious with all of his followers though his true servants he lifts them up later mark found his courage he came to truly accept the cost of following the lord and he went on to prove himself faithful once again to the point where now paul wanted him on the team it's like in grade school kids picking teams mark became the kid that everyone wanted to pick we know this from second timothy 4 11 It's another decade later. Paul's imprisoned in Rome again for a second time. Only one person is with him, though, and that's Luke. But as Paul writes Timothy to visit him, Paul requests Timothy bring one person along on that journey. Who's the one person Paul requests to come with him? It's Mark. 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful to me for service. All this goes to say, our service to the Lord doesn't have to be perfect. It never is. It's never without flaws and failures. We still have the sinful flesh. There are going to be times where we we break. We fall short of our full commitment to serve the Lord in, in every way. But the Lord is ultimately pleased by true faith. True faith will always repent, return, be renewed, take courage once again. Think about your own track record as a member of Christ's church. Have you proven yourself faithful and useful for service? Or have you been unfaithful? Have you been more of just a bystander in all your years in the church? Have you even deserted in some of your responsibilities? If so, I, I would tell you from Mark's example, don't be forever 
discouraged. Be renewed. Turn back to Christ with a renewed zeal. It's not too late. Mark, he had a fearful start, but he went on to have thereafter 20 plus years of faithful and fearless service. The Lord is in the business of renewing those who fall. That's all of us and using them in great ways. You can do the same. Even if you're not the missionary superstar, you're just the helper. Just be faithful. Strive. Make yourself a ministry asset, not a ministry liability. That became Mark, and let it be us as well. Next on the list, this is number five. The fifth character we're going to look at is justice. Let's keep going here. Look down at verse 11 in Colossians 4. He's also passing along the greetings from this guy. He says, and also Jesus, who is called justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. And they've proved to be an encouragement to me. So the next greeting Paul sends to the Colossian church is from Jesus. But not not that Jesus. It's a different Jesus. Jesus was a, a common name back then. Hebrew for Joshua. But, of course, after the church, Jesus became more of a sacred name. And so it's kind of too bad for everyone else who happened to be named Jesus at the time. It's like, you're going to have to take a nickname. Like, we're going to have to, we're going to get confused. It's kind of like being a kid growing up in the 50s and your name happened to be Elvis. Like, sorry, you're going to need a nickname now. We're not going to call you Elvis anymore. Thankfully, this man named Jesus already had another name, Justice. It's quite common for Hellenistic Jews to take on a Greek name as they sought to blend into the culture. And so this man named Jesus had already taken on the Greek name Justice. We don't know any personal details about Justice. We simply know Paul called him a a fellow worker. He too was devoted to the work of the ministry. And we know he was among the believing Jews. Justice is said to be from the circumcision. Pretty obvious reference to his Jewish background. Already, though, this tells us one thing, that justice was willing to suffer shame and loss for the sake of Christ. That's just the price of being a Jewish Christian at the time. And most of the Jews ended up not believing in Jesus as their Messiah. The crucifixion proved to be just too big a stumbling block for them. They couldn't get over the fact that the Messiah was crucified. He died on the cross couldn't accept it. And so they didn't believe. There were some, though, who were just so convinced by their own scriptures that even still, this Jesus is the Messiah. He really is the promised one. They believe. They follow Jesus as Lord. But that most often meant excommunication from their synagogue and being even cut off from family. You now, Jewish Christians, they also endured some of the worst persecution from their own people. You know, Paul himself, he desperately desired for his own countrymen to come to believe. Even though they're the ones, though, who made his life the hardest. They're the ones coming after him, trying to kill him. At one point, they stoned him and thought he was dead, dragged him out of town, and just left him. They thought they had killed him, but they didn't. He was heartbroken over their unbelief. But this is also why Paul is so encouraged when he finds those who are part of the believing remnant. They, they accept Christ as their Messiah. He's encouraged by them. People like Aristarchus and Mark and now Justice. As he says in verse 11, they've proved to be an encouragement to me. In spite of all the hardships of ministry, they, they lifted his spirits. We don't know anything more about justice other than he was one of those encouraging Jewish brethren. He was willing to deny self, pick up his cross, follow Jesus no matter the cost. He believed that the name of Jesus was worth it, even though he shared a name with Jesus. He knew that that the other Jesus, Jesus the Christ, has the name above all names, and he was willing to lay down his life and accept whatever cost came and making much of him it's all about the name of christ and that that's an example to follow whatever your name is make your life about the name of christ number six is epaphras we'll spend more time here epaphras a bigger character verse 12 he goes on to say epaphras who is one of your number 
a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Now, back in set verses 7 and 8, Paul introduces two people he would be physically sending to Colossae to visit the church, Tychicus and Onesimus. Thereafter, Paul lists six fellow workers who, they're not going to be making the trip to Colossae, but they're sending their greetings. The first three were all Jewish believers, Aristarchus and Mark and Justice. Now we get into the second three men. They're Gentile believers. The first is Epaphras, and he's the biggest name here. In fact, if the Colossian church was going to expect anyone to be coming to them in person, they would have thought it would be Epaphras. That's because Epaphras was their founding pastor. He was from Colossae. We've seen Epaphras before. If you're with us when we started Colossians, to give you kind of the background to Epaphras. You know, Paul, in all of his missionary journeys, he never got to Colossae. So he was not the one to sow the seed of the gospel in Colossae. But the church sprouted there nonetheless. So how did the seed of the gospel get over there? Who brought the gospel to the Colossians? And we learn it, it was Epaphras. On Paul's third missionary journey, he stayed in Ephesus for two full years. And Acts tells us throughout that whole time, people from all of Asia Minor were coming to him to hear him preach. Many were converted. We know for certain, but most likely Epaphras was one of those who was converted in Paul's time in Ephesus, Colossae is 100 miles to the east. He goes back home. He takes the gospel with him. People believe the Colossian church is born. Paul confirms in Colossians 1-7, where he credits Epaphras as being the one who first delivered the gospel to them. He calls him a fellow bondservant and faithful servant of Christ on his behalf. Epaphras really became an extension of Paul's own ministry. Now, here at the end of Colossians, we have Epaphras. He's sending his greetings to the Colossian church. That obviously means he's no longer with the Colossian church. He has left. Why is that? Why did he leave? Well, we we kind of put together the pieces from Colossians. We know that the Colossian heresy was on the rise. He's becoming more of a challenge, and it, it likely was proving too much for Epaphras to handle. It's kind of above his pay grade. He he didn't quite know how to respond. It's not like he could pick up a systematic theology and learn how to contend for the faith. So Epaphras felt the need to visit Paul in Rome, most likely to learn how to respond to all these issues. But he ends up staying in Rome. He does not immediately return to the Colossian church for reasons unknown. Maybe He wanted to stay and and serve Paul during his imprisonment. Maybe Paul thought he needed even more training and discipleship. Either way, though, Paul sends Tychicus back to the Colossian church with this letter in his hand to help them deal with their issues, but he holds on to Epaphras. Epaphras, though, sends his greetings. And here in verse 12, this is why Paul is elaborating, because he wants them to know that that his reason for not returning has nothing to do with a lack of care or concern for them. To the contrary, no one, not even Paul, cares for the Colossian church as much as Epaphras. Just look at this description of him in in verse 12. He's one of their number, a fellow bondslave of, of Jesus Christ. He's committed to not his own will, but God's will. And Paul adds, he's always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. Agonizomai is the word in the Greek from which we get agonize. It speaks of intense strain and toil, like a fight or a wrestling match. It's applied here figuratively to prayer. Epaphras did not just casually pray for the Colossians. He, He was agonizing on their behalf in prayer. It's in the present tense. He's continually praying for them. He couldn't be with them physically, but he was sure to be with them spiritually as he took their needs to the throne of grace. Epaphras, really a living example of what Paul urged the Colossians to do back in Colossians 4.2. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. 
Epaphras was devoted. And look at the main subject of his prayer for him. I'll tell you, it's better than the tree trimming. His, his main focus is better. It's a better show. I know it's, I kind of want to look too. I really want to see what's going on, but I can't. But look at verse 12. You know, there's something learned from how he prays. He says that they may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. We find in this prayer, he really is just mimicking the apostle Paul. They're, they're doing the same thing. You know, the, the focus of his prayer is the exact same focus of Paul's prayer. It's just to see the people of God grow up and just come to maturity and the fullness of understanding. Back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul prayed that they would come to the full knowledge of God's will. And back in chapter 1, verse 28, 29, Paul stressed the focus of his ministry. He says, we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete, same word, in Christ. He says, for this person I labor, striving, same word, agonizing, according to his power which works mightily within me. You see, in prayer and in ministry, Paul likewise agonized to see God's people just come to maturity of faith. Epaphras is like the same thing. He's doing the same thing. This is a guy you don't know. You've probably never heard of him. He didn't write any books. But he was right there in the trenches of ministry with with the Apostle Paul, just desiring to see all believers fully assured, he says, in all the will of God. And speaking of the will of God, today when people think of God's will, They think of of some personal revelation for their life. Like, should I marry this person or not? Should I take this job or not? Should should I move to this place or not? As if they're expecting some sort of divine revelation answering them. But, But guess what? You're not entitled to special revelation telling you how to live. It's probably not coming, and that's because it's it's not God's will for you to know every single aspect of his plan for your life. That's why he hasn't told you. But that's not the point. He's, he's already told you his will. He's told you everything you need to know to navigate this life for his glory, even though you don't have all the details about where to move. You just need to seek Christ. Then it doesn't matter where you move. See, when Paul and Epaphras speak of the will of God, they're really speaking of the full knowledge of the mystery of Christ and the totality of God's plan of salvation. That's the will of God that you need to know. Just like Paul said back in chapter 2, where he wants them to attain, he says, to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. That is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, what you two need to seek is is the wealth that comes from a full understanding of Christ and the gospel. And the knowledge of Christ and his salvation, that that's the will of God you need to know to direct your life accordingly. And Paul's ministry and Epaphras' ministry just revolved around that. They just wanted nothing less for them because he cared about them. He wanted to see them just get it right, to not stumble and fall, but to walk in maturity and steadfastness in this revealed will of God. You know, the fact that he cares about them is is see that in verse 13 as well. Paul continues to testify for Epaphras. He says, for I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And here Paul continues to testify on Epaphras' behalf. You know, though he's not going to return to the church at this time, he's got a deep concern for them. This word concern, it's just the word for pain. And it's intensified, deep pain, this intense longing for them. Such that, you know, when they suffer, he suffers. And so although they're apart, Epaphras is most certainly going to gird himself and enter battle on their behalf through prayer. And not just them, for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, those are the two neighboring towns in the Lycus Valley. You've got those three cities all together. And almost certainly Epaphras was the one who planted those churches as well. Colossian Church was going to threaten them as well, so 
he's concerned for all three of these churches. But overall, just from Epaphras, what an encouraging example. It's a lesser known name, but he's a true servant of Christ nonetheless. He wasn't seeking personal glory. He wasn't trying to go down in history. He was not trying to build his brand. He was just a servant of Christ. He just wanted to spread the good news. And then when people believed, he cared for them. He just wanted to see them come to fullness, to maturity, to, to stable or stability, and to enter the will of God. Could that be said of you? Do you have a, a deep concern? Think about that. A deep concern for your fellow believers, even in this church. And what might you do to grow in a genuine concern for the spiritual growth and steadfastness of, of the people just even sitting next to you? And like Epaphras, why don't you just start by praying, praying for your church, praying for one another. Ministry is not just teaching and preaching. You may not even have those gifts, but you can still labor earnestly to serve one another in many ways. You can all start with prayer. One way or another, though, may you be encouraged by Epaphras' example of what it looks like to just, just throw yourself into serving the Lord and serving his church. We got two more to go. Let's continue. Number seven is Luke, a seventh character here in this farewell greeting from which we derive encouragement. Now we have Luke. This is in verse 14. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings. Here we have Luke, and we find from him another example uh, that worthwhile ministry is not exclusive to teachers and preachers. You don't have to be a pastor to make a meaningful contribution to the ministry of the gospel. Really, it's the unsung heroes like Luke who really prove to be the, the wind in the sails of gospel ministry. Now, you're probably wondering if this Luke is the same Luke as the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. And the answer to that is yes, so the same Luke. He's known as Luke the Physician. You've probably heard of Luke being a doctor before, but, but get this. How do we know Luke was a doctor? This verse, this is the only verse. If this tiny little reference in Colossians 4 didn't exist, we would never have known Luke was a doctor. But he was, and this provides a, a good explanation of Luke's frequent presence with Paul in all of his journeys. I mean, Paul was known to have recurring health issues, so it makes sense. He wants a guy like Luke to join him all the time and be a real support member on the team. Luke is like the first medical missionary. And speaking of, Luke was with Paul on many journeys. We know this because in the book of Acts, he often inserts himself into the narrative by going into the third person plural. He says, we. He doesn't say, and then Paul went here, Paul went there. Every now and then he says, and then we went here, and then we went there. He inserts himself into the narrative, but never by name. In the whole gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, he never actually names himself. He was not seeking his own glory or fame just by like writing a book. It's not why he was doing this. He just wanted to report the good news of Christ and the beginning of his church. He didn't care about the royalties. He didn't care about his name, his authorship. He didn't care. Now, back in the first century, being a physician, I mean, not as lucrative a career as today, but still well off. We know Luke was educated. He was cultured. It's pretty obvious by the quality of his Greek writing. Also, physicians were persons of skill and intelligence. So that just means Luke was the type of person the world would look at and say, like, why are you throwing it all away? Why, why are you giving up all of your skill and your potential just to go suffer with Paul for nothing? I mean, you could do so much more. You can make so much more money. Why are you following Paul? But that was the choice Luke made. We see him all the time. He's right there with Paul, just suffering for the sake of the gospel. Luke was with Paul in Philippi. He was with Paul in Jerusalem. He was with Paul on that fateful shipwreck where they all almost died. He's now with Paul in Rome, his first imprisonment, greeting the Colossians. 
And then he's with Paul again at the end of his life. A second Roman imprisonment where Paul will be executed. There's only one person left with Paul, and it is Luke. 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, only Luke is with me. We find that Luke indeed just gave his life away to serve the Lord. He probably could have had just a nice, nice, safe, quiet, prosperous life, but he wanted to make an impact for the name of Christ. You know, today, countless churches have, have likewise been named after Luke, but he wasn't seeking that, I'm sure. He was simply serving the name of Christ, just being faithful with, with his gifts, his talents, his skills. That's, that's all you're supposed to do. How has God gifted you? Your spiritual gift, what is it? And are you returning those gifts to him by way of service? Don't listen to the world. It is a worthy thing to just pour out your life on the altar in service to the Lord. It's not a life wasted. It's a life invested. It will reap eternal rewards. And those who are just just simply faithful in whatever they do, like Luke, however they might contribute, they, they get joy in this life, knowing they're being used of the Lord to, to spread his name. And they get exceeding joy in the next life as the Savior is faithful to reward his faithful servants. And whatever you do, that's what you need to do. Just remain faithful. Not everyone does. And that brings us to our final character, our final name on this list of greetings, and that's Demas. Demas in verse 14. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. And that's it. With this, Paul includes one final name, almost in passing, Demas. Who is Demas? We, we don't really know. He was a Gentile believer. Good chance he's from Thessalonica because he's mentioned with Aristarchus, who's from Thessalonica. Later, he goes back to Thessalonica. He, we know he's part of Paul's ministry team. He's listed with the same crew of people over in Philemon 23. and He's called a fellow worker. Philemon 23, he says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Jesus Christ, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. He's on the team. We don't know the role he played, teaching, support, administration. But he had advanced in the faith enough to be found faithful and useful for just full-time ministry role. He joined Paul's team. Little, though, did Paul know that, that later Demas would prove himself unfaithful. Now, I mentioned before Paul's second Roman imprisonment. There, Paul knows it's the end. He knows that one, he, he's going to die. He will be executed for following Christ. The end is coming. He writes a final letter, 2 Timothy, to Timothy. He just desires to see Timothy, his protege, one last time. He can kind of formally pass the mantle of ministry off to Timothy. So in 2 Timothy 4.9, he tells Timothy, make every effort to come to me soon. He tells him, 2 Timothy 4.11, only Luke is with me. But the reason Paul is alone is in verse 10 of 2 Timothy 4. He says, For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. What's going on here? Desertion. He says, Demas deserted me. It's the word for forsake, to utterly forsake. Like Jesus on the cross, my, my God, why have you forsaken me? Demas forsook Paul in the ministry. Demas had been with Paul in Rome during that second imprisonment, but as, as the heat turned up, as it was clear, like, oh, you're, you're, they found you guilty, like, you're going to die. It, it was too hot for him. Just the residual heat was too much for Demas. He, he ran away. He fled. And for Demas, we get an explanation. In 2 Timothy, Paul says, For he loved this present world. Literally, it says age. He loved this present age. We're warned in Scripture, Don't fall in love with this world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. There's a deceitfulness in what the world is offering you. 
from the lust of the eyes to the lust of the flesh to the pride of life. But Demas did not heed that warning. Do we find in Demas, is he, is he falling away from the faith? Or is he still a believer, but he's having like a Peter-like moment of fear and, and faithlessness? And we don't know for certain. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.16, he says, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. He says, may it not be counted against them. I mean, it's a little optimistic. Maybe Demas was a true believer, but like Peter, he was just overwhelmed by fear. And to save his own skin, he, he fled. That's a best case scenario. Whatever the details, though, we, we find in him just a sad final testimony. Not of enduring faithfulness, but faithlessness. And this is, this is the one example you should not follow. I know for a lot of Christians today, given the world we're living in, what what keeps them from giving more of themselves to serve the Lord is fear. The the evil world system is turning up the dial. I mean, the the heat is kind of starting to rise for Christians in the church. At least those who confess Jesus as Lord and his scriptures as actually true. And so day is coming where just being associated with the name of Christ or a church that, that still preaches the full counsel of the word of God, it's going to mean shame, persecution, oppression, suffering. And on that day, there's going to be many who reason, I don't want to suffer loss because of Jesus. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to lose my reputation. I don't want to lose my family. And because of the heat, they will desert like Demas. I'll tell you, though, yeah, to follow Christ might soon come with a high cost, but turning away from him comes with a higher cost. Your soul. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Rather, heed the words of Christ himself. He knew such days were coming. He warned his disciples in advance that the path of discipleship is lined with suffering. But listen to how he both encouraged his disciples, and and warn them not to fear, but just to follow. Listen to Matthew 10, 31. He tells them, do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. You don't want that. The stakes are high. We're saved by faith. But is your faith real? Well, there's one way to find out where will you be when the going gets tough. Have you counted the cost? It is worth it, but make sure you know what you're signing up for. He continues in Matthew 10, verse 38. He says, He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who's found his life will lose it. But he who's lost his life for my sake will find it. It appears Demas was more concerned with with saving his skin, with finding his life, with just enjoying what this life has to offer. And in so doing, he may very well forsake the life to come. The cost is high. It's only getting higher. but, But don't let this lead you to quit the team and join the other side. That comes with a higher cost. Your soul. Rather, remember, even when it looks like the other team is winning, they're not. The Lord is true. He's good. He's sovereign. He's returning. And when he comes, he will judge the wicked and the unfaithful. But he will rescue and reward those who have clung to his name in faithfulness. And so which will you be? Be faithful now. Prove yourselves faithful now. And be part of the team now. And as the culture turns, as the odds are stacked against the church, the teamwork becomes even more essential. We're going to have to work together to let the light continue to shine to the lost. And we have to work together to build up one another, to protect, to encourage, to preserve one another. It might be now more than ever that that the team of the church needs you. You For now, for us today, the, the theme continues. And that's just to be faithful. However you serve, however you're part of the team, 
just be found faithful. We trust the Lord to do what is right. His will be done, and it will be done. But I pray you're encouraged by the many examples of of these faithful servants of Christ in the pages of Scripture, those who who gave their life away just to serve the Lord and and advance his name in whatever way. But now it is your turn. We're still part of that that team. 2,000 years later, it's, it's going on. What's your part to play? And I pray you likewise, in whatever shape and form, you lay down your life and your name for the name of Christ, just to seek, to, to give, to serve, and then ultimately to be found faithful. When that prayer be answered for all of us, may we be a faithful church. Let's pray together. Our glorious God in heaven, help us to be faithful, Lord. Prove us faithful and, and fill us with your spirit to, to make us faithful. We confess that we are weak in the flesh. We sympathize with Peter, with Mark, those who fell, who had a moment of weakness, who, who well, the pressure got to be too much for them, even sometimes like, like Demas. That could be us. Our flesh is weak, even though the spirit is willing. But we pray, Lord, we, we fear you more, but also love you more to know that the cost to forsake is much higher But I pray fear is not our only motivation. Give us just a love. May we just behold more the truth and the glory of the gospel that, like Peter, we can also say, to whom shall we turn? Where where are we going to go? Only Christ holds the words of life. Just purify our true faith. Give us a greater love for our Lord that we know with him is, is found peace and a joy that surpasses all comprehension. And that leads us to accept whatever cost comes with following him in this age. We don't want to love this age. We love the age to come. That's what we're looking forward to. But as we're still here in this age, may we just be faithful to contribute, to do our part. You've given us gifts. You've given the church a mission. It's not just to limp by and wait for the end. We are to be active in serving you and one another. So prove us faithful. And may we be convicted to to rise up, to serve and build the name of Christ until he returns and we partake in that glory. Until then, uh, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.